Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and 25-year-old co-host, Christian Ubius. I specify your age, Christian, only because we've been celebrating your 25th anniversary here on the show this month as we've been discussing 1997 in film, and we took a look at three of the biggest box office hits on our major episodes for this month of April here, but now get to turn our attention to the top, or our respective top five films of 1997, and I gotta say, I've been looking forward to this episode for a while. How are you, my friend? Are you coming into this with excitement? Are you just drowning in movies you hate and had trouble putting together a list? How are you? How's it going? There were a lot of movies that I saw, and yet even with all the movies that I saw and have seen, it still was not enough movies, you know? (laughs) Yes. The sad reality. And also some big ones that I am upset I didn't get to, or even revisit. There are some that a long time ago I saw and remember liking. I just haven't re-seen them since then. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to do a top five list for a year, for an entire year. But I'm, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the experiment and we'll probably do this again with a different year eventually. Maybe we'll have to do 1995 in film once once I'm turning 30, if Cinema Drip is going to last four more years. <laughs> we can look at the 30th anniversary of that year. But seriously, I feel you in terms of looking at just looking at the movies that came out this year. There are plenty that I've seen, but so many that I couldn't get to. And there are just so many notable people who made movies this year. Steven Spielberg made two movies. David Lynch made a movie. Uh, who else am I looking for? There's multiple Nick Cage action movies, multiple Harrison Ford movies, Masters Martin of World Scorsese. Cinema, Martin Scorsese, Pedro Almodovar, Tarantino, yeah. Guillermo del Toro, Francis Ford Coppola, Paul Thomas Anderson, David Fincher, J-Lo played Selena. I mean, there's just, there's all kinds of movies out there. There's so many different options in 1997. Even the guys who made South Park made a movie this year. Like... <laughs> There's just so many movies that are either made by notable people, star notable people, or are sort of curious, you know, like that South Park option, or that have sort of a cult classic flavor to them, like Brendan Fraser was George in George of the Jungle this year, which isn't a movie that I've seen, but I know has its fans just based on Brendan Fraser's devoted fandom. So, so many options to choose from, and that's why I'm looking forward to comparing our lists, just because I'm sure we'll have some crossover. We we often do, but there's also just so many great movies to talk about, and I'm looking forward to diving in. So, Christian, anything you want to add before we get into our number five movies? I'm full of regrets of all the movies I have not gotten to. <laughs> but if, if a movie that you love is not on my list, I'm sorry. Maybe it just wasn't good. Or, you know, maybe I didn't get to it. it I, both are equally viable. Uh, that being said, uh, outside of Titanic and Goodwill Hunting and Hercules, I think that those are the three most remembered movies from this year. Uh, and it's interesting to just see like which movies had the staying power and which didn't. But we, we, we can, I mean, we can talk about that later. Absolutely. And there's also, I mean, there are movies that are remembered for different reasons. You know, something like Perfect Blue, which is a, and 
an anime film directed by Satoshi Kon, has a devoted following. It's the fourth most popular movie on Letterboxd from this year. And yet there's probably tons of people listening to this podcast right now who've never heard of it. <laughs> it's certainly something that's more well-known in certain circles. And there's lots of movies like that. Obviously, Tarantino made Jackie Brown this year, which is one of his movies that is not as widely known or celebrated, not because it's bad, but just because some of his other movies are far more famous for one reason or another. So it's a really interesting year. And, and again, just so many great options and always more to see, unfortunately. And I had to remind myself as I was putting this list together, because of course I didn't get to see enough movies that I wanted to see before making this list, but it was a reminder that top five lists are made to be changed, made to be broken, and there's always going to be an opportunity to watch more movies and adjust a top five or a top 10 down the road. So this is our top five list of 1997 as of April 25th, the day we're recording this episode. So listeners would love to know if you guys have any movies that we don't mention, feel free to send them in, give them some love to our email and we'll throw them out on next week's show. But Christian, would you like to start with your number five or my number five? I'll, I'll give you the chance, birthday boy. Uh, let's start off with your number five then. Alrighty. So my number five, which was decided about two minutes before we started recording, because <laughs> there were quite a few that could have fit into the spot. I had to go with the final movie that I watched, and it was a rewatch for me, so returning to it before wrapping up my, my watches and putting together the list, and that is The Fifth Element. Which was interesting. Yes. Written and directed by Luke Besson, co-written by Robert Mark Kamen, starring, of course, Bruce Willis and Mila Jovovich with Gary Oldman playing the antagonist. Let me tell you, Christian, I had been wanting to rewatch this movie for a while. I watched it years ago and remembered liking it, but remembered very little about the movie. And I had forgotten how completely bonkers <laughs> this movie is. And that is the right word for it. Like, it's a goofy, whimsical movie. And the tone can be all over the place, where Basan is trying to tell this sci-fi action-adventure story one minute and then swinging back into zany comedy the next. And then there's an action sequence. <laughs> and it can be not quite all over the place with tone. It's a pretty consistent tone. But just so many different types of stories mishmashed together. It follows Bruce Willis's character, Corbin Dallas, who is a retired soldier and now taxi driver who comes into Lilu, who is this alien being who is called the Supreme Being, and she is supposed to save Earth from this giant scary thing that's hurtling at it and is going to destroy it. <laughs> and so, of course, a lot of bad people try to stop them along the way. And there's fun to be had here in terms of a sci-fi action adventure, in terms of a, a goofy comedy, and frankly, just a lot to enjoy from a craft perspective. The world that Basan and his collaborators create is so enjoyable to look at. Tons of crazy costumes, goofy hairstyles, practical and CGI aliens. There's so much going on in The Fifth Element, but I had such a good time rewatching it. So I wanted to make sure I could fit it into my number five slot because, honestly, there were a number of movies that I could have put here and felt fine about. But I just wanted to make sure we could talk about The Fifth Element. I have I, I've seen that a year and a half to two years ago. I remember it. Uh, and I remember thinking, yeah, this is this is a crazy movie. Now... I, I mean, honestly, it's enjoyable. I, I like it a lot. I have no problems with you doing it. I just, I'm, I'm trying to remember everything that happened. Uh, I remember the opera scene. The opera scene was sick. 
Yes. <laughs> that 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 opera scene was amazing. And also it it's very Star Wars esque in that Star Wars has absolutely zero grounds in science. Like none whatsoever. And I, that's <laughs> definitely the campy nature that Fifth Element went for. So you know what? I enjoyed it. Fifth yeah, Fifth Element. I don't know if it's famously so, but apparently Luke Besson started on the story of this movie when he was sixteen years old, and he made the movie when he was thirty-eight. And there are certainly times where you can recognize a teenager's imagination at work with <laughs> just how crazy this movie gets. And honestly, I have to say, be warned, listeners, like the story of this movie isn't quite nonsensical but <laughs> there are some underbaked aspects to it namely a romance between Bruce Willis's character and Mila Jovovich's alien character that becomes very important to the end of the movie and when it's finally happening you're almost confused because they barely spent time on it outside of Bruce Willis hitting on her <laughs> but what can you do you know I, I was upset at that <laughs> I, I, I was slightly upset at that it's it's a movie that is just crazy and fun enough for me to outweigh the flaws, which I have to acknowledge are there. But that is The Fifth Element. It is not streaming anywhere currently, but it's rentable a number of different places. So, Christian, I now turn it over to you for your number five. I know you've seen it. Written and directed by Andrew Nichol, it's Gattaca. Ooh, Gattaca! Yeah. So, yeah, it stars Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman, Jude Law. It's about a future where you are valued based on your genes. And so most children are genetically engineered from the moment of conception. Their parents take them to a geneticist in order to make sure that the best possible genes can go there. And Ethan Hawke's character is a i think he's called a godchild because his parents did not go see a geneticist for him and so his he has a very low estimated life uh, expectancy he has a severe heart issue and because we live in a future where you are discriminated against if you have bad genetics and that is taken by blood then they go and and he's uh, not allowed to do any job really he's he's left with the the worst that society has to offer so he ends up being a janitor and he ends up being a janitor for this space system Gattaca and wants to go off into space so decides to not steal someone's identity but someone with perfect genes he manages to trade places with and that character is Jude Law's character, in order to go... And where does he end up going? Neptune? No, not Neptune. Going on a mission to Titan, which is a moon of Jupiter. Jupiter. Going on a mission to Titan. So it's... I kind of loved Ethan Hawke and Jude Law and Uma Thurman in this movie. I think that as a trio, they were incredible. And also the, the heist slash con of them, of him basically absorbing Jude Law's identity and doing so by scraping off all his dead skin cells and making sure he has enough of Jude Law's dead skin cells to put places and making sure that he has blood in his fingertips that are is Jude Law's blood so that they can take it from him. I thought it was so creative and really just 
fun to watch unfold. It's a really intriguing world and concept. And it, obviously sci-fi is used for this kind of story a lot where you're trying to comment on real world issues in a future futuristic setting. And it's, I think it's good theorizing about this kind of world where if we do create a world where people can gain genetic advantages from birth beyond the normal ones, like you know certain people having greater lung capacity, so they're better swimmers or they're better brass instrument players, you know, if we can give people these kinds of major advantages, what would that do to folks who can't afford this or who are not just simply afforded the possibility like Ethan Hawke's character who interestingly enough, has a brother who is genetically engineered after he is born. His parents obviously favor him growing up, and he reflects on that in the movie. It's a really fascinating story, and there's so many small aspects of just the actual story being told that are so well done, whether it's the con aspect of it, where Hawk and Law have to consistently, like you're saying, have these little bits of DNA to sprinkle around, and he's pulling these things off, he's squirting... (laughs) Jude Law's urine into testing cups or it's the the romance that develops between Ethan Hawke's character and Uma Thurman or it's the almost thriller aspect of the movie that happens where his identity starts to come into question because there's a murder and they're looking for this murderer and of course they they find a little bit of DNA on the scene that belongs to Ethan Hawke's character and they assume that this guy who's not this genetically perfect human is the is the villain so there's a lot of different facets of this story being told and, and Nickel weaves it weaves it all together pretty well especially for this was his debut film correct I believe so. I'm not yeah, sure. I believe so. I got to tell you too. I saw this movie the same day that I saw The Northman. Just a great day for Ethan Hawke. <laughs> who who really really pulls off the leading man thing in this movie. He really does. Absolutely. And Uma Thurman, man, we underused Uma Thurman in our lives. She's also really great in this movie. I agree with you. What is your number 4, Scott? Moving on to my number four, Christian. It's a movie that listeners of the show might be familiar with, and I'm almost going to guarantee is going to come up later on this show. It's a little film called Titanic, Okay. which if you missed our episode last week, you should go check it out. I watched Titanic for the very first time for this podcast and was so grateful to have done so. I'm not going to belabor the point here, but incredible movie star performances from Leo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet and an absolutely bravura directorial performance from James Cameron pulling off this historical fiction love story at the same time as he is pulling off this crazy disaster epic and both the blending of CGI and practical effects are super impressive especially for 1997 that kind of strikes the right balance even if there are some you know some things you notice about it aging or what have you but just a movie that I completely went for and totally down with it being the best picture winner of this year obviously it's my number four of the year so far so I'm not going to say too much more on that but my number four was Titanic so I will talk about this later on in my list so we'll 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 wait then but my number four was Wag the Dog Um, I know that you've heard of it but you have not seen Wag the Dog have you have heard of it have not seen it so sell me on it Christian why to make your list Cool. Screenplay by Hilary Henkin and David Mamet. It's directed by Barry Levinson. Now, this movie um, is a satire, and that's important to know. So in the movie, the president has just been accused of a sex scandal, and for all intents and purposes, they make it seem like, yeah, he probably did it. 
and so a fixer is brought in, played by Robert De Niro, to try and get rid of it. So what he does is he contracts Dustin Hoffman's character, who is a Hollywood producer, to stage a fake war against Albania to throw off the scent of the sex scandal so that the president can be reelected. It's amazing. <laughs> oh my goodness. So they start they start uh, they they're working with Anna Hetch's character and she is the the person on the president's staff team. And she asked the question, you know, that everyone asks, why Albania? And Robert De Niro gives the perfect answer. Why not? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, it, it, this movie holds up so, so, so well. I, I honestly highly encourage you to watch it. And people out there. The dialogue is incredible. The satire is poignant. It is a timely movie, and it makes you sit back and think, what's sad is that I would believe this is what happened in the 90s. I believe that this is what happens now. <laughs> uh, yeah, amazingly, we are unfortunately not out of the woods with presidential sex scandal. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad to hear that. It, well, I guess I'm not glad to hear that it's aged well, but <laughs> certainly something on my radar. And Christian, I am curious to know, because you are a writer, my friend, and I know David Mamet is widely celebrated for his writing. He's obviously worked in theater, he's worked in film, but he's someone I'm completely unfamiliar with so i'm curious what you thought of the you know some of the specifics of the writing if you if you had any you know more thought out opinions on mamet that you wanted to share uh david mamet was a pioneer of mamet speech is what people call it so it's like when someone asks you a question for example your response is to reiterate what they said but in a different tonality and that's what his dialogue is so for example why albania why not albania it is or um what are you doing what are you doing kind of a thing and his characters very much portray that and are very accusatory everyone's very direct and upfront he's a problematic figure david mamet but i i will say he's a talented writer i've really enjoyed the screenplay and honestly it's the combination of the dialogue and also the the situations that they find themselves in like they're shooting a commercial that's supposed to be a <laughs> they cast Kirsten Dunst as a small young Albanian child who is fleeing from she's like I don't know fleeing over a bridge and so they have a green screen and her running and oh man she's like holding a bag of cereal that then then like turn into a kitten so it it's it's it in post yeah no it's he him yes him and his co-writer and let me just pull up the name of the co-writer again his co-writer Hillary Henkin, they they do some good stuff here. There you go. That is Wag the Dog. Shall I move on to buy number three? Let's move on to. Oh wait, wait, wait. We haven't been. Gattaca is on Netflix. Your number four was Titanic. <laughs> Titanic on Prime. On Prime, and um, Wag the Dog. I got the DVD from the library. So let's go with your number three. Moving on to my number three, another movie that I rewatched for this episode, and I'm glad that I did. It is L.A. Confidential, which was co-written and directed by Curtis Hansen. He also did a screenplay with Brian Helgeland, adapted from the novel by James Elroy, and starring Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe, both of whom were relatively unknown at the time in North America. They were more famous in their native Australia. Also starred um, Kim Basinger in an Oscar-winning role, Kevin Spacey, Danny DeVito, and James Cromwell. 
LA Confidential is a crime story. As you can imagine from the title, it features these interweaving stories of police officers in the LAPD. Crow plays Bud White, who is prone to violence, especially against men who are violent towards women. But of course, his temper gets him into hot water. Guy Pierce plays Ed Exley, who is the hotshot young cop on the rise who's trying to play everything by the book, but he wasn't afraid to screw over his fellow cops to get a leg ahead. And Kevin Spacey plays Jack Vincennes, who is a cop who also works in Hollywood as a consultant for one of the TV shows that is based on a cop, as that's, uh, I guess, a new idea in the 50s or 60s. I'm not quite sure when this movie set, but I believe the 50s. And they all get caught up in something going on that involves, of course, a conspiracy with crime in L.A. and in the police department. Uh, this, So just this big, giant crime movie that is just sort of in a sweet spot for me of a type of movie that I really enjoy. I really like film noirs and kind of these classic looks at Los Angeles. And so this one is sort of just down the middle for me, but it's also just incredibly well done in terms of how they set this story up and they condense Elroy's novel, which apparently featured even more major characters and storylines, and they really streamline it well to the point where you learn information at a, such a good rate, sometimes before other characters know it, sometimes learning it with them. And so you're constantly on the edge of your seat trying to figure out what's going on. And if these guys are going to solve these murders that are happening across L.A., is everybody here innocent or are they not? And of course, as revelations are made, you just start to hope that our main characters are going to make it out of this movie alive. And I think Kim Basinger and as a very interesting element to the story too because she is playing a woman who is a prostitute but she is sort of engineered and not so much engineered but dyes her hair to look like veronica lake who is a hollywood star at the time and she's a part of this ring of prostitutes all of whom are designed to look like hollywood stars so there's even a slight uh (laughs) winking eye at hollywood and at the star system and how we how we treat celebrity mixed in with all of this. So just an incredibly well done crime story, incredibly well acted, and one of those noirish films that is really fun to return to. I honestly had forgotten some of the the big twists too. So it hit me all the same as I was watching this again. So that's LA Confidential Christian, one of the most successful movies of this year at the Oscars as well. Although Titanic dominated, it received nine nominations and managed to win for Kim Basinger, of course, and for the screenplay. So did you have a chance to catch up with LA Confidential? I did. I liked it. I liked it a lot. It's pr- It probably was this p- tied with Gattaca for my number five, but um, Gattaca, the, here's the reason. Gattaca made more sense to me, and I think that parts of the screenplay still confused me, or parts of the plot. Not in a bad way, just a, I want to rewatch it in order to be able to appreciate it more. And I do think that Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce and uh, Kim Basinger, yes, though her part is very small, they're putting in some phenomenal performances. And just things that really are showing the different sides of underground LA. It's It's a great and thought-provoking watch yeah it's it's funny to know that neither of these two were particularly well known in hollywood and obviously both of them are still known quantities in hollywood although their time in the a-list spotlight is over for both of them they're moving down to the a-minus or b-list 
Guy Pierce obviously would go on to be in Memento with Christopher Nolan, among other movies. And Russell Crowe's about to go on one of the biggest actor runs around that time where he got nominated for three straight Oscars for best actor in a leading role around the turn of the century and one for gladiator. So this is right before the two of them really pop off and it's fun seeing them in early career performances. Plus obviously Kevin Spacey himself, very problematic figure in Hollywood these days, but he he's given a fun performance here as well, where he's known for both supporting and lead roles. And around this time, he's continuing his rise in Hollywood, and, and he's having a, a good time on screen as well. Danny DeVito is sincerely very fun as Sid Hudgens, this gossip columnist <laughs> who keeps getting himself involved in the proceedings because he's trying to track all the scandals and violence that's going on to sell to his readers. Just each of these characters are so well sketched, even the people who do bad things and get involved. There's just, yeah, everyone is set up so well, very, very confidently and capably performed. Even people in the smallest parts are just perfectly cast all around. So this one is just a down the middle winner for me. I was very, very glad to return to it. So that's LA Confidential. It is streaming on Hulu right now. That's where I watched it. And of course, rentable a million other places. So Christian, we now go to your number three. My number three is going to surprise you that I have on here. Uh, screenplay by Ronald Bass, directed by PJ Hogan. It's My Best Friend's Wedding. My Best Friend's Wedding, Christian. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't wait to talk about this. All right, Christian, tell the people about My Best Friend's Wedding. Julia Roberts is a career woman, and she has a best friend who is getting married, and she realizes that she loves him and needs to go and stop the wedding. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It is so great. It is because here's here's the thing. This is a rom-com that to me is actually funny. And the performances, not just of her, but of Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz in this movie. Spectacular. I would have chosen Cameron Diaz myself. We all would have chosen Cameron Diaz. And once you watch this movie, she comes out looking so good. <laughs> she looks so incredible. Um, and also, also like Dermot Mulroney. Good looking dude. Not going to lie. Mulroney. Dermot Mulroney, baby. Yeah, he, he is looking pretty good in this movie. Uh, and, and I think it's funny because I heard you recently say, you know, it's fine. I liked it. Is it great? No. And inside I'm like, you're you're just going <laughs> to you're just going to have to put up with me when I put this on my list, man. <laughs> I cannot believe this is on your list. Me and my wife, Maddie, did watch this movie. And because we were, I obviously was fitting in 97 movies. And I was like, hey, I think you'll enjoy this one, too. Because she's not a huge movie person, but she likes a rom-com. So we were watching it and just were left a little bit unsatisfied. (laughs) And I will say, I'm not offended you have this movie on the list. Because it's a, a movie that was on the top. 10 for box office that year it was a monster hit it was well loved to revitalize julia roberts career which is a, a little lull and it it's a movie that has gone on to have a very confusing reputation because some people truly truly dislike it and some people love it it's like rom-com royalty partly because of the the, the way that the story resolves the ending is yes great like the ending felt 
okay, none of this movie is realistic, but the ending felt like, oh, yeah, you know, this is where she should actually be going in life. This is where they should all be going in life. Yeah, and I will say my qualms with this movie is that obviously for a rom-com, you have to suspend your disbelief. People are going to have rom-com logic. They are not going to behave like normal people would, but there is just so much in this movie from conception that is insane. <laughs> Where, for example, Julia Roberts and Dermot Mulroney's characters are have agreed that they will marry each other if they turn 28 and they're still not married, which... You know, I got married very young. I got married when I was 23. But even so, 28 is, you're still so young. <laughs> like, hey, why are you, hey why? they know they want marriage. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. And so somehow, of course, these two, who are best friends, mind you, there's no way that that our guy Dermot fits in the fact that he has met a woman, let alone he's proposing this woman. He's met a woman Julia is completely blindsided by this fact. And we know it's because she hasn't called him back on his last few messages. But even so, she's blindsided by the fact that he's in a relationship at all, let alone that he's getting married. And of course, who's he getting married to? He's getting married to the daughter of a billionaire who is 20 years old and still in college. <laughs> hey, hey, that's amazing. <laughs> and so, Marry for money, man. There's, there's just, uh, it, you know, yes, it is amazing for our guy Dermot Mulroney. It's not amazing for our gal Cameron Diaz, who let's like she comes out of this movie just winning. She is, she wins this movie. Good for her, Cameron Diaz's character, who's Kimmy. Her name's Kimmy. Good for you, Kimmy. But just so much about this movie's concept is so hard to get over because of no, the way that these people. She act. chooses love. <laughs> Yes. This is just such an enjoyable movie and so well crafted. Let's let's talk about the one thing we can definitely agree on, or rather the one person we can definitely agree on, and that is Rupert Everett. Is who, that the gay best friend? Yes. Love he, him. He is uh Julie Roberts' oh, character. Uh Jules is her name, of course. So he's Jules' editor, because of course she's a food critic. And he is her editor slash gay best friend. And of course, a lot of rom coms feature a gay best friend but he actually comes out as a real character and I, I don't mean comes out in the sexuality sense i mean he he's a real character in this movie he's not just an accessory to her developments um I, although of course she all pretends of his, she yeah, pretends that he's her fiance and course. he makes sure that she pays for it and it Indeed. is wonderful are you talking about the scene where the billionaire owner of the Chicago White Sox takes his family to a restaurant called Barry Kudas for an yes. important wedding lunch? <laughs> hey, billionaires can be down to earth sometimes, okay? <laughs> uh, functionally and practically, that is that is wildly untrue. But, uh, you know, this movie made me believe that a billionaire could deign to eat at a restaurant called Barry Kudas. <laughs> it, and look, Rupert Everett is great in this movie. Julia Roberts is like... Her hair is flawless in every scene of this movie. The hair and makeup team went off this whole time because she looks amazing. Good for you, Julia Roberts. And good for you, Cameron Diaz. It's, and this is like a rom-com that is fun enough and enough people love it that you should absolutely watch it if you're a fan of rom-coms. It's one that I wouldn't recommend to you before recommending a bunch of others. But ultimately, Christian, can't fault you that it's here on your list. Let's, let's, go, with, let's go with your number two. My Best Friend's Wedding is on Netflix. I'm it is that's on where Netflix, you watched yes. it too. All right. Uh, we're going to wildly swing in tonal directions here, Christian, because my number two is Boogie Nights. Same. 
Wait, are you serious? I'm completely serious. What? <laughs> Listeners, this is so exciting. Christian, shut up. Wow. Okay, so our joint number two is apparently Boogie Nights, which is written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Came out when he was a, a tender 26 years of age. So by the I'm time he was 25. my age. 25. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah, yep. Yeah, it's ridiculous that he was able to make this movie at that age. It, of course, follows the rise and the, fa- the rise and fall of Dirk, Dirk Diggler, Diggler, played by Mark Wahlberg, who is a, a young man who becomes a porn star in the golden age of porn in the late 70s and early 80s, featuring an ensemble cast of the people who surround him in this dirty world. <laughs> and... Uh, let me tell you another movie that I was rewatching for this list, and it you know made me surprised. Um, just to to go back to it, I, I guess I should say it didn't surprise me that I went back to it and enjoyed it more than I even remembered enjoying it in the first place. I it's actually the first Paul Thomas Anderson movie that I've rewatched. I've seen most of his movies, not all, but the first one that I've actually taken the time to rewatch. And the scope and the scale of this movie is so impressive, especially considering that he's 26. And it manages to tell such a convincing and goofy, in a way, rise and fall, because Wahlberg is literally 17 when this movie starts. He's in his 20s by the time it ends. And he is... The, I mean, the most fascinating thing about this is PTA doesn't shy away from the fact that these people are, are young and dumb and foolish. And, of course, Wahlberg's character is loves talking about karate with his with his friends one of whom is played by John C Riley and of course they become like a crime fighting porn duo in the, one of these series of movies they spend lavishly on clothes and cars and they're so naive while also making these hardcore pornography films it, it it's just such an incredibly well done movie and each again another movie where all of the characters are sketched out almost perfectly um christian i want to turn it over to you because i now know this is our shared number two and the reason i reacted the way i did listeners is because christian and i have often disagreed on paul thomas anderson i'm a big fan christian is not normally and is even called phantom thread one of the worst movie theater experiences oh, not of one of it is the worst <laughs> time i've ever spent in a theater so I planned on talking about Boogie Nights and having to defend it to you this entire time. And yet, it is our shared number two. I'm just beaming with glee. So Christian, tell, tell the listeners, tell me, why did you go for Boogie Nights where PTA has not always done it for you? Because I think most of the time he loses himself in over-directing his movies. And it, it's characters that are finely sketched out but overall, it's about how much the production or the costumes or the score are tying in with everything. Like, he goes a lot for atmosphere. And to me, the, the characters in the plot don't always rise to that, which is why I'm not a fan of The Master. Because sure, it's a nice, thrilling, dark time-ish thing. But I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't see Joaquin Phoenix's character the way that he wanted me to see it. That being said... I watched this and all of the characters fit together for me. Not just Mark Wahlberg, but also how these characters were like rising and falling. And porn here is not something to be admired, honestly. It was ruining people's lives. And it's not, this isn't like an anti-porn movie either. It's just like a rise and fall and people who are turning to this because many of them don't really know where else to turn to. 
Mark Wahlberg doesn't really know what else to do when he leaves home. Honestly, the, the, the view of Julianne Moore and her children and how she's not allowed to have custody of her children, or even William H. Macy's failed marriage, and how in that it just took him to make drastic, drastic decisions. It, it's, a, it's a harrowing tale, and that's why I think I went for it so much, because the characters seem to be at the forefront, not the atmosphere. And, and also, this is beautifully shot. The cinematography of this movie is, is incredible. Yeah, it, it really is. It shot by Robert Elswit, who collaborated with PTA a number of times. And it's it's a really nice blend of young, spunky director and his, the energy he's looking to bring to this. Because the camera moves a lot. There's a lot of one takes. And famously, this movie opens on a, it's like a three minute one take that introduces a ton of the major characters weaving through this club where they all get together. A lot of one-take shots, a lot of camera movement. It's a really exciting movie to look at. And and like you said, it's just really well done and just the look and the design, of course. But I I really like some of the things that you were saying about these characters where there are moments where it's absolutely harrowing. And it's sort of fun, of course, to watch them have a good time and enjoy the, the lavish excesses of this life. But... PTA, even at 26, is wise enough not to let everybody stay there, but also show the cost that these decisions have on them, where it's not just a few, but most (laughs) of the characters develop drug problems. Many of them do bad things to enable those habits or get other people involved in dangerous situations to enable those habits. We see the ways that Obviously, like you mentioned, Julianne Moore loses her family. That roller girl who is played by Heather Graham, both she and Wahlberg are sort of these lost young people who leave home and get wrapped up in this world and and don't really have a place to go when when things are not going well. And they have run-ins with their past that throw them off and scare them in a way. And, uh, And even Don Cheadle's character, who is... As sort of more enterprising. He's trying to get out of the business and go into uh, a more legitimate business. He wants to open a stereo store. We see the ways that he is judged by the owner of the store that he works at. And then, of course, he tries to open his own store down the road and is stopped up at the bank because they don't want to work with someone with his past. They show, or PTA shows the ways that this industry wears on these people and their lives. And yet, at the same time, also shows the way that they become sort of a screwed up family (laughs) through it and there's a lot of interesting aspects to these familial relationships especially playing on the fact that julianne moore and the last person we really should mention burt reynolds who uh, along with julianne moore was nominated for an oscar for this movie one of his late career resurgence performances where they become the sort of de facto parents of this little screwed up tribe (laughs) and anything else you want to add christian i feel like i just uh monologue for a while there this is an exciting movie (laughs) i'm gonna cut off your monologue don't worry there you go i will say too of course this is a movie obviously about people who are making pornographic films and so not one to watch with the kiddos but like christian said it, it doesn't glory in the industry there are a few graphic scenes if you're sensitive to that thing or that sort of thing of course so be mindful if you're going to watch it but um, again, still, I, beyond some of those surface-level excesses, there's a lot going on under the surface, and it's the kind of movie that it, it's considered a classic of this year for a reason, not just because they're 
you know, there's naked people in it, but because of everything else going on. So that is our joint number two. How exciting, Christian. Do you want me to share my number one or would you like to go first since we sort of had an awkward <laughs> announcement there in an unexpected way? Let's go with your number one. Alrighty, Christian, we're going to go with my number one. It's another movie that I discovered because of this podcast, although it's not a movie that we covered this month on the podcast, so don't Princess worry. Princess Mononoke. That's right, Christian. It's Princess Mononoke. You guessed it. I was going to try to say it was Airbud because the first Airbud movie came out this year, but... <laughs> Uh, you, you beat me to the punch because you announced my choice. It is Princess Mononoke, of course, written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki, which we covered last year for our Studio Ghibli marathon. No, a year and a half ago. year and a half ago? Ah, Christian, what? <laughs> We've been doing this podcast for so long. It's kind of crazy. We did in the past for our Studio Ghibli marathon. And, of course, it follows Prince Ashitaka, who becomes involved in this struggle between the gods of the forest and the humans of iron town who are stealing its resources and he is must find a way to settle the tensions and bring unity to the supernatural forces and the human forces all the while he is being uh, hampered by this curse that was uh, afflicted upon him by one of these displaced forest gods it's a movie that I not only watched once for the podcast, but then watched later with my my dad, actually, and my brother, I believe. So shout out to my dad, who's a listener of this podcast. A little shout out for you. I feel like I give you a shout out every so often, dad. But it was a movie that I wasn't expecting him to like, but he really did. He became more interested in Studio Ghibli than I ever thought he would. And, and it just goes to show the universality of these movies in some respects, they are family movies, and Miyazaki loves to feature young, you know, children or adolescents as his protagonists. And of course, Ashitaka is joined by Princess Mononoke, or rather San, who is, of course, a young woman who's living with some of these forest gods. But it's a movie that just feels epic as well in its scope and its scale in this world that is beautifully set up, not just in the animation, but in the dynamics going on. It's deeply nuanced and features Miyazaki's signature love of the natural world and the environment. But of course, although it's not necessarily subtle, it is implemented in this movie in such a beautiful way as as humans and their need to survive, of course, is pitted against nature and this supernatural world that unfortunately is being pushed out by the onset of civilization. But it's a movie that has stuck with me. And although, of course, I keep an open mind as we're watching these movies and I'm really either falling back in love with them because I'm rewatching them or I'm seeing them for the first time and being blown away by Titanic, I sort of knew in the back of my mind that this was going to be my number one and nothing displaced it. So that is my number one for the year, Princess Mononoke, not Airbud. <laughs> Christian, did you uh, did you rewatch Mononoke or did you consider it for your list or you know what's your relationship to this movie? I didn't because I think it's a really really well crafted story, but um, I on it I, I think it loses itself in the ending, and I think that was my major complaint at the time that I think it built up such a cool and an interesting world and the ending was way too sudden and abrupt for me. I, I, I don't have any issues with you loving it. I'm glad that people love it. It's epic in scale, and it's much more epic than many other movies that we consider to be epic to be. Yeah, of course. Animation as a medium can create epic stories. It's it's not often one that we consider for that type of adjective. Normally, it's the giant 
historical war epics or something like even an Avengers movie, Avengers Endgame is it's epic and bringing all these super powered characters together. But of course the medium of animation can create such a, an, an epic and mythical tale as well. So if you are still new to Studio Ghibli, you're not super familiar with it and you're looking for some of the greatest hits to, to try it out and see some of the, the most famous movies, I would highly, highly recommend you check out Princess Mononoke the only one that I would recommend before this is probably Spirited Away, which I truly love, and it's I love it a hair more than Princess Mononoke, but these two are two of my favorite animated movies ever. So, Christian, you mentioned it earlier, but what is your number one of this year? I mean, you want to say it since I said you're number one? <laughs> it's Titanic! It is Titanic, written and directed by James Cameron, like you said. And it's one of those movies where... I don't know. It's 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 fun. Like, it's not just well-crafted. It doesn't just have an interesting story. It's not just full of movie stars that you want to hang out with. But it's fun. You're cheering. And, and I understand it's about a lot of deaths. But I think that I'm still cheering as the movie goes on because I can't wait to see what happens next. And when I watch it the first time, as the boat goes up because the part of it is flooded... I'm like, dang, how did they do this? And uh, that that feeling, that like feeling of awe is is something I care deeply about. And because that that feeling of awe just just never left. Titanic is 100% my number one movie of the year. That's such a a good quality to identify in movies that become personal favorites. It's often those movies that leave you feeling awe and whether it's something like titanic in its massive scale or sheer entertainment value despite the disaster happening on screen or it's a small and quiet drama where you're completely blown away by the acting or the writing and the truths of the human experience that the the writer and the director of mine it's that sense that we're often chasing as we're big movie fans continually watching movies we want to enjoy these crazy stories we want to engage with actors and movie stars we want to laugh with comedies and cry with tragedies but we all want to be odd and I, i'm glad that you identified that as something that's so key to the enduring success of titanic is there really anything else that you would want to add? Because we obviously went for an hour on this movie last week with our friend of the show, Emily Baker. So anything else, Christian, that you feel is, is left unsaid about Titanic or at least why it's your number one? Not from me, though. I do recommend that people watch this in groups. It's, it's a great movie to watch with other people and be like, oh, wow, that's... That ship's going up. That ship's going down. These people are dying. It, it, it's, it's, it's a good group watch. I gotta say, speaking of it being a group watch, it's a movie that I'd love to see in a theater someday on the big screen because I have not done that, obviously. <laughs> I watched it on Amazon Prime. But I would really enjoy that movie theater experience because I feel like this that the experience with Titanic is only going to be better with a giant tub of popcorn and cherry Coke. <laughs> All right, Christian, those are our collective top five movies of 1997. 
I will quickly provide a rundown for my list and then I'll ask you to do the same. So number five for me was The Fifth Element. Number four was Titanic. Number three, LA Confidential. Number two, Boogie Nights. And number one, Princess Mononoke. Number five for me was Gattaca. Number four for me was Wag the Dog. Number three, My Best Friend's Wedding. Number two, Boogie Nights. And number one, Titanic. All right, Christian, got to ask a few movies that might have been honorable mentions for you. Definitely a few that I fit in for the first time that were just barely off my list, but would definitely form this six through ten. Uh, Perfect Blue, which I mentioned earlier on this show, directed by Satoshi Kon, is such an incredible psychological thriller, all captured in an 80-minute movie of, of course another um japanese animated film as well so if you like princess mononoke and you're looking for something a little more uh <laughs> r-rated check out perfect blue also jackie brown a Tarantino movie that i saw for the first time and quite enjoyed the game a fincher movie that i saw for the first time and enjoyed and starship troopers i wanted to make sure i could shout out uh paul verhoeven's sci-fi satire from this year i had heard a lot about it and specifically how it satirized highly militaristic cultures and, and jingoism and i was not prepared for just how how hard the uh, satirical uh, bell rings throughout the movie it's also just like a fun sci-fi action movie <laughs> so gotta say i i dug starship troopers and i feel like all of those movies could have been my number five at at different points throughout this month as i was catching up with movies but any honorable mentions for you christian i like confidential and then i would also probably say Jackie Brown, that even though I I didn't rewatch, if I had rewatched, might have made the list. Uh, and then outside of that, Hercules, I, I I will say I don't. I think you have to choose whether or not you like Hercules, and, and but the animation on it still holds up. That as I was rewatching it, I'm like, oh, the, this animation is kind of incredible. So yeah, I would I would say that. Uh, the only other movie I'll mention, because of course there's a million we could, but the only one I'll mention is I did not rewatch Goodwill Hunting. It's the one that I wanted to rewatch that I didn't. That probably would have made this list if I did, but <laughs> it's another another great one there. I I do love me some Matt Damon and some Robin Williams and some Ben Affleck. So uh, how do you feel about Goodwill Hunting, Christian? Not seen it in years, and and I liked it, but I I don't think I have. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not the biggest Matt Damon fan, so that might be why I wasn't, it wasn't high on my rewatch list. Maybe we'll have to do a Matt Damon blend of the month someday, or, Christian, or, or to, to reform your opinion. But of course, this now brings the official conclusion to our 1997 blend of the month. Christian, you got to curate everything. Do you feel that we did your 25th anniversary justice? I do. I enjoyed this month. It was a good time for sure. I loved our concept here and catching up with 1997, which is just a really solid year in film was a good time. So thank you for hosting this month, Christian. And now it comes to me to host for the month of May. And I got to tell you, there were quite a lot of ideas running through my mind and it was really hard to choose. We talked about possibly doing a Sam Raimi blend of the month because, of course, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is about to explode into our multiplexes. But not a lot of his movies are available on streaming right now. The last that I checked, Army of Darkness, which is the third movie in the Evil Dead trilogy, was the only one. So we want to make sure that we can provide some streaming options to the people out there. Plus, Sam Raimi, unfortunately, doesn't have a ton of, like big mega hits like the evil dead which are cult classic movies and the spider-man trilogy which of course were blockbusters he's got a lot of other stuff that it's typically well liked but 
obviously it's not widely available right now. So I was trying to think about what we could do instead that would give us some streaming options. And Christian, I have not told you what's coming next. And I can tell you right now live as we record this. And I got to say, I'm really excited about this. Christian, are you aware of a little movie that came out this weekend? Uh, it stars a, a no, don't do a it. Fantastic man. No, by the age, I mean by the name of Nicolas Cage, <laughs> co-starring Pedro Pascal. If we're doing a Pedro Pascal month, that's okay. Oh, too bad, so sad, Christian. Of course, last weekend saw the release of two major new films. One being The Northman, the other being, of course, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which stars Nicolas Cage as himself. And I got to say, there's a lot on the table for us to discuss when it comes to Nicolas Cage. <laughs> so, Christian, in honor of the release of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent and in recognition of a stupendous Hollywood career that just won't quit, May is going to be the age of Cage, baby. We're getting in the cage with Nick Cage, and we're going to be doing some of what the official month will be called Greatest Hits of Nicolas Cage's Career. So, I... Have not picked all three movies yet. I did wrestle with different ideas for what we could do and ultimately landed on some of the greatest hits. And so what we'll be starting with is his collaboration with the Coen brothers, which is Raising Raising Arizona, Arizona. which was released in 1987. It stars him and Holly Hunter as a married couple who kidnap a child from, I believe, the, is it the mayor of their town or the governor of their town? I don't know. I'm forgetting it, but they they are two people in love who kidnap a baby. So Raising Arizona is available for streaming at Hoopla, which you most likely have through your local library. And of course, it is widely rentable. And we're going to be checking it out next week on the Cinema Drip podcast. Christian, how are you feeling? Sure. <laughs> it's the age of cage, baby. We're getting into it with Nick Cage. I'm excited about this. But of course, listeners, that'll have to wait as we have a couple more things to mention on this show. Firstly, our contest that we've been doing here in the month of April. We are running this contest, of course, to get you a free trip to the movies, or rather a trip to the movies on Christian and myself. We gave three clues during our episodes for this month that when you combine them all together, we'll give you a movie title and when you submit your guess to us and the first person i guess i should say the first person to submit the correct guess will win a trip to the movies from us so now all three guesses or all three clues are out there we've received a guess from our guy paul gonzalez so paul friend of the show paul gonzalez thank you for sending in your guess i can't tell you if it's right or not though paul because we are going to give people through the end of april to submit their final answer so get your guess in By the end of April, this episode will hopefully be coming out on Friday the 29th or Saturday the 30th, and we're going to give you until the release of our following episode where we'll announce the winner. So please do submit your your guess, which again, you just got to send in the movie title once you combine the three clues. Christian, any any, uh, thoughts on the giveaway here? No. No thoughts? No thoughts on the giveaway, folks. Well, at this point, we've talked about our top fives of 97. We talked about what's coming next week, and we talked about the giveaway, so that means this is our show. If you are at this point, of course, thank you so much for listening. We obviously love watching these movies and sharing our thoughts 
with you, the listeners at home. So thank you for listening. There are a few things that you can do to support the podcast. Number one, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and go ahead and leave us a rating and or a review. Helps us feel better about ourselves, of course, but also helps us reach new listeners on all of those different podcatchers. Number two, you can also send us an email at cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. Of course, if you're trying to win a trip to the movies, you got to submit your guests via email, but you can also send us your thoughts and feedback on the show. If you have a movie that you want us to discuss, maybe a Nick Cage favorite of yours, or you have an idea for a blend of the month down the road that you want us to take into consideration, let us know your thoughts at cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow myself and the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and both Christian and myself on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? Nope. Well, folks, this has been our 97 Blend of the Month. We hope you had a good time, just like we did. And until next time, it's the Age of Cage, baby. And this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.